Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. One of the wonderful practices in inside Buddhist tradition actually developed by uh, Stephen Levine year to live practice um, in that practice you actually spend the year as if you've been given a terminal diagnosis and you plan all the things that you would do uh, it actually has some some pretty profound ramifications in terms of reconnecting with people, focus on what gives our life real meaning and purpose, to prioritize those, to uh, put aside concerns that would not be of um, value from that perspective and so forth. So anyway, the, the year to live practice is wonderful way to get a different set of perspective on life, but also in another way it's actually profoundly true that we actually don't have any guarantees that we will be here a year from now even a day from now uh, there was a wonderful uh, dear friend member of this community Lauren who was riding on her way to work one morning and was run over by a careless driver and killed and uh, she had of course no preparation that that event would happen. Um, just a month ago, a young woman was left her home in Soho and walked outside to go to a yoga class and was a truck backed over, backed into her and crushed her to death. Um, every year, countless individuals will go to uh, the doctor for a checkup, uh, maybe looking into some kind of back pain and find out that they have uh, inoperable cancer. It happened a uh, very young woman I was working with uh, was basically out of the blue given only a few months to live diagnosis. And uh, as part of my work doing hospice uh, training at a you know, wonderful hospice uh, uh, training organization and also in my own life uh, doing that you see how there are people who clearly had to very quickly transition from the perspective of oh I don't have uh, I, I have time to do that thing I've always wanted to do in the future to a perspective of oh I don't have any time left to even do that which I wanted to do so um, None of us uh, have any guarantees. We're all living on borrowed time. And uh, it's an uh, important perspective to keep in mind for a number of reasons. I'll talk about why. Um, there's a whole rich tradition in clinical psychology called terror management. I love that name. I was talking that last name. For me, it's, it's like heavy metal. I love, you know, <clears throat> terror management. <laughs> it's 
like a, you know, like a should be like you know the agents for a rap band or something, terror management. <laughs> so fucking cool. If there was any any domain of psychology I would can have continued in, I would it would be terror management. Uh, anyway, one of the key insights of of that field is that we all have a, uh, we live with a great paradox in life. Uh, we all know that we are going to die and that the time will be unpredictable. And yet we also have deeply ingrained a very strong survival instinct that's deeply hardwired into the midbrain the very core limbic structures of the brain, which are set up to uh, uh, ensure our survival. And in accordance with the midbrain, we have other structures in the brain that uh, try to put outside of our awareness the fact that our death is um, inevitable and uh, unavoidable and uh, we don't know it, when it will happen. Uh, terror management studies the effects of how putting out of awareness the denial of death, uh, the toll that it takes on us and what it means. In fact, the book, uh, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker uh, in the 70s um, was one of the fundamental uh, texts in terror management. And uh, it noted that so much of human behavior can be looked at uh, as a way to distract our attention from this paradox and from our own fragility and vulnerability. Many people try to develop what existentialists call an inauthentic relationship with their mortality by seeking what's called symbolic immortality to uh, essentially have buildings in their names <laughs> uh, plaques you know to to do something that will give what is considered to be a representation of self that will last behind the grave as a way not to not to examine this crucial fact. Many people deny it altogether by, you know, uh, essentially, of course, the uh, afterlife uh, idea uh, that of winding up in a better place and so forth. Uh, many people uh, deny death by exaggerating what they believe will be the probable length of their life. Um, and many people will put it out of mind simply by keeping themselves distracted with short-term uh, concerns throughout their lives as a way to purposely not examine this most fundamental uh, foundational concern, which is how do we, how do we come to terms with the facticity of our limited time span and our lack of guarantees. Like, if we don't keep those into our active consideration 
according to uh, existentialists from, you know, especially Heidegger and Nietzsche, etc., then we're not living authentic lives. Because if you make your choices with the idea that you have an unending amount of time, then those choices are not actually weighed against uh, anything real. And in fact, therefore, they're not, from that perspective, uh, made with uh, a true degree of uh, insight, or they're not weighed with any uh, rigor. Um, in terror management, they suggest that uh, one way that people healthily, in a healthy way, deal with uh, the fear of death and uh, the fear of, of separation from the loved is through building up self-esteem, which is actually a healthy way. Uh, studies show that those with low self-esteem experience far greater fear and terror and become very often immobilized when losing a loved one or when facing their own mortality. Um, and also when people who have healthy self-esteem go through experiences where their self-esteem is wounded, such as uh, separations from loved ones or uh, business failures and so forth, then they spontaneously start worrying about their own health and mortality. So there seems to be a very direct correlation between having a healthy sense of how we can respond to uh, this uh, most profound truth and having a healthy sense of self. That's not a, a healthy, self-esteem is not something that's based on, of course, one's bank account or uh, anything like that. It's simply, as we'll talk about, acts that um, create a felt sense of worthiness especially acts that are beneficial to those uh, around us. Um, on the other hand, people who uh, do not take uh, care of building up a healthy sense of, of self-esteem through positive pro-tribal actions have been found to, when they face what's called mortality cues, <laughs> or death reminders, they're just in clinical studies, you can remind people of their own death by getting them to write about it and then you give them all kinds of tests and when, after they're given mortality cues, they will become far more nationalistic and patriotic, <laughs> xenophobic, they will erect narcissistic defenses by claiming a far greater credit than they deserve for certain events and they will become far more, of course, religious and not in a good way. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> from both an existentialist and a Buddhist perspective, the goal is to live in relation to our own mortality and to, <clears throat> knowing that, to then embrace what gives life meaning and what will will make our lives feel meaningful when we look back on it. There was a wonderful sutta by the Buddha called the Agbaya Sutta. <clears throat> Somewhere in the, uh, the numbered discourses, um, 
And the Buddha in this discourse is uh, confronted by a Brahmin who is a practitioner in a different spiritual faith who openly doubts that there is anyone who could possibly, uh, there's any way to transcend the fear of death. The Buddha argues that there are people who fear death more than others. And so he talks about um, the first, in terms of what he believes makes people have a greater fear of death. Um, One is he believes that people who are addicted to substances and behaviors that are essentially short-term pleasures that over time we uh, grow more and more distracting and uh, leads to a sense of uh, not essentially prioritizing their endeavors. Those people are far more uh, activated by coming to to face with their own uh, fragility. Uh, Two, people who overly identify with their body. That means being caught up with, you know, or obsessed with the beauty of the body, because of course that's subject to aging and sickness. Three, those who have lived life that weren't beneficial to others. And this we know to be especially true. Um, There's a whole, one of my, uh, another of my favorite uh, fields in contemporary psychology is what's called uh, social neuroscience. And I've read, read actually quite a bunch of books in social neuroscience by people like Kochiopo and Matthew Lieberman, etc. And they find that there are actually dedicated regions in the brain that reward us for pro-social actions, for deeply embedding us positively in uh, a community or with a clan or tribe of friends. And um, this is, of course, uh, due to natural selection. So we know from the work of Richard Wright, and especially Robin Dunbar, the greatest uh, evolutionary psychologist of our time, um, natural selection and uh, our species spend the bulk of uh, our evolution uh, in very close-knit small groups of nomadic hunter-gatherers where we would have to utterly depend and rely upon the social cohesion of small groups to survive. And if we didn't uh, concretize these relationships through positive actions, sharing resources that we collected when we would go out to gather food, that uh, the results would be dire for us. Because if we were found to be selfish, uh, stingy, uh, if we only thought of our own, uh, what was beneficial to us, uh, then eventually those members would be cast out and would die off. So over time, over the course of evolution, not just with Homo sapiens, but the the previous, uh, what was it, Homo erectus, Homo, ah, I can't remember them all, but um, all of these, iterations of our species required collaborative, cooperative approaches to living to survive. 
And so over the course of evolution, these circuits from the dorsal anterior, wait, the right dorsal anterior cingulate cortex to the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex. Wow, it's amazing I can remember this shit. Um, there's literally a circuit that rewards us for staying well connected and punishes us for feeling that we've acted completely out of selfish instincts. Uh, that doesn't mean that all of us have those circuits working particularly well. And very often those sociopaths run, wind up running a country. But um, most people, uh, if you are well, essentially uh, welded into a strong tribal connection, then what will happen is the, those two circuits will raise the level of serotonin and, and endorphins. So you'll be less subject to mood plummets and you'll feel less pain. And of course, those are the two features you want to experience if you are actually confronting something that's really overwhelming, such as the reality of death. Finally, the third, the fourth quality is people who have not trained themselves in some form of practice to develop inner peace, uh, who have constantly uh, abandon a, a, a quest to learn how to self-soothe and to find a way to disconnect from our thoughts to practices that uh, autonomically down-regulate us into rest and digest states of the parasympathetic nervous system. If you don't know how to do that and you're suddenly confronted with death for yourself or other, then the thoughts will become obsessive, intrusive, they'll spiral, and you will have no way to in any way disconnect from those thoughts and find any degree of peace and ability to then profoundly use your time in a meaningful way. The Buddha, in one wonderful sutta, said, while I was rich and surrounded by splendid objects and beautiful people, I was living in ignorance, for though I am mortal and not immune to death, when I saw people who were sick and suffering and dying, I was horrified as if I was oblivious to the fact that I would die. To be so easily horrified means I was living in an undignified way. And so I set forth to seek my spiritual path and liberation. So we see here that actually the entirety of the Buddhist spiritual path was actually a reaction to, again, the facticity of our mortality. Um, the Buddha's practice, which we'll talk about, Maranasati, or awareness of death, when people have it, their studies show that there are some remarkable benefits. Um, there was a survey of people who have been confronted with death and who acted in response to it. And they found that those people um, were actually far more optimistic, grateful, and experienced a greater degree of friendships in their life than those who had had actually no exposure uh, to or mortality reminders in their life. I know for me, the great change in my life happened after witnessing 9-11 on my way to work and literally 
you know, being there and having that event in front of me. And then uh, after that, I completely changed everything about my life. I lived, I completely gave up uh, an entire uh, field that I was working in. I undertook Buddhist teacher training and then uh, decided to live my life, you know, offering uh, Buddhist spiritual counseling and teaching by donation. And that was not something that I was going to do before that period and before being confronted with such a profound reminder of our vulnerability. Um, older people who uh, do work with others who are sick and dying have been shown to be more present time aware and more forgiving in their life. And uh, a study, 2010 study, being present in the face of existential threat. Again, that should be an album title, right? I like, <laughs> maybe just for me, I don't know. <laughs> It'd be like black metal. Uh, people who are more people who are mindful of death were less defensive in their worldviews and more open-minded. Um, contemplating fragility, we uh, have to recognize that every time we do something might be the last time we get to do it. And so it imbues each experience with, it invests it with significance and with, um, you know, resonance. And uh, it makes it far more memorable when we undertake uh, activities as if these conditions may never ever come together again. And actually from a Buddhist pers perspective, that's true. Uh, every time we do do something, it is for the last time because we'll never experience that event with the same feelings, thoughts, uh, capabilities, and so forth. Um, so the awareness of death is, lies at the very heart of Buddhist practice. The first great insight of the three great insights into existence is impermanence, lack of guarantee. It's called a Nietzsche. And the Buddha said that uh, the, the five daily re uh, recollections that every practitioner should reflect on is, um, wasn't about compassion or, or that, although those are, that's great. <laughs> but the five daily reminders are, and, and they go as follows, I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. All that is dear to me, I will be separated from. And the only thing I truly own are the quality of my actions. And the last one means that um, uh, at the end of our life, when um, our sensory awareness diminishes, our ability to be independent diminishes, our ability to connect with people we might want to connect with diminishes and so forth. They, the, the most pertinent factor that contributes to our emotional well-being and uh, resilience will be, did we live a good life? Did we love well? Did we uh, act in beneficial ways? Did we 
take time to uh, 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 make sure that we feel that we played a very positive role in the lives of others. Because, as we've said, the key regions that we want to light up in the brain to make us face uh, our own fragility are will only act in accordance if we act in ways that are beneficial to others. So, um, tonight we're going to, in our practice, do just that. Uh, that's my talk. That's one of the, that's the reasons I think that this practice is really beneficial and worthwhile. So, um, find a really comfortable seated position. So yeah, make yourself really comfortable. Just don't uh, worry what it, what you should look like. Don't try to look like a meditator. Just allow your to find what feels like a really comfortable upright position. Closing the eyes, or if you don't want to close your eyes, just look at the ground in front of you. And just reel back in your awareness from the world around us. Like it's a fishing line and you're just reeling it back in and bringing your awareness from the ocean of the world around us back into the body. And uh, Let's take a nice full inhalation and squinch the muscles in your face, clench the jaw, furrow the brow, and then long exhalation through the mouth and just release, unclench the jaw. Imagine you could spread and soften all the muscles in the face and then Encourage the eyes to settle. When the eyes stop bouncing around behind the eyelids, then sends messages to the midbrain that we are in a place where we can relax.
And then a second full inhalation, and if you like, lift your shoulders up. And then rotating them back to open up the chest. And then allowing your arms to fall lifelessly. And just try to keep your arms from being stiffly held by your side. When the shoulders are clenched tight in front of the body and the arms are held tight, of course it's, again, informs the midbrain that we are in a defensive state. So opening up the chest. Just allowing that space to be open informs neuroceptive structures in the brain to relax. And then for a third inhalation, imagine that you're breathing directly into the middle of your abdomen. And so the in-breath is, as the air comes in, as the belly is expanding and then the breath energy goes up into the chest maybe that expands a little bit and then with the long exhalation feel the chest and then the belly fully release abdominal breathing is a wonderful way to inform preconscious structures of the brain that you are okay to return to rest and digest. Long exhalations engage the vagal break and that lowers your both heart rate, your blood pressure. So try to focus on making the out breath as long and as smooth, not pushing out the air, but just releasing the air.
a little while, let's just try to keep awareness on the sensations of the body. Especially the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. Riding, or you can view the breath sort of like a kind of surfing where the inhalation you're paddling out, waiting to catch a wave, and then the exhalation you're riding the release of energy back to the earth, back to the shore. If being with the breath is difficult, if it feels for some people it might make them anxious or then you can use sounds, awareness of the very subtle sounds of the room and sounds from beyond the room. Finding a present time sensations to just keep us grounded from attaching to thoughts and wandering away from this moment, from this actual experience, from the aliveness of this moment. We really want to try to land in our life, to reconnect with what's true beneath all the thoughts and stories to reconnect with, just and appreciate the profound miracle of simply attaining a body that can sustain itself. How many conditions have to come together for us to <coughs> endure, to really appreciate the body which every moment of our <coughs> existence is supporting us.
no matter how far we might wander from the present, it doesn't matter. It's just all it takes is for us just to relax and find the sounds around us or the breath, some sensation in the body, and just to return, no matter how far you wander, it's just a matter of letting go for one moment and just relaxing. And every time we do that, it's a small iteration of liberation or enlightenment. It's just simply letting go of all the stuff we add onto experience to distract us from the truth of being in a corporeal form. If you're ever struggling, just stop, relax. Don't try to attain anything. Don't try to be anything. Don't try to do anything. Just relax. Use the breath in a way to soften and You can know throughout the body if there's anything that feels jumpy or tense, heavy, and just use your breath to breathe into that area and soften, release, unwind. 
letting go of any beliefs we have about what meditation should be and just using this time to just really come back home to the body whatever way that means for you.
So take a moment and just observe how the breath feels now. Does it feel relaxed? Is there a kind of ease and space for it to arrive in the belly and then up into the chest? Or does it feel constricted? Does it feel like you can fully, slowly release? Or does it feel cut off? And then just add a very straightforward thought, just a reflection. While I observe the breath, just add the thought, one day this body will stop breathing. One day this body will stop breathing. And just see if this most fundamental contemplation in any way affects the way we relate to the breath or the breath itself. How does, does it change the way it feels? Then just switch awareness to the sounds around you. The subtleties of slight shifts in the room, the sound of other people breathing. And just knowing that one day this body will lose the clarity of our senses. With age, hearing, and vision, blur, become less distinct. See if knowing the fragility 
of these senses change the way we relate to how we hear. Try to just repeat these phrases in your mind. I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. to be separated from all that is dear, all that I truly own and will be left with is the quality of my actions. Having these contemplations in mind, we ask, what actions, what have I done that I feel most proud of, that I could point to as having a life well lived? what has great brought the greatest sense of self-worth, beauty, esteem. Whatever you might have touched upon in this contemplation, just let that be your intention moving forward. So whenever you're ready, taking your time, just at your own pace, with your eyelids enough that you can see the ground in front of you, 
and try to integrate, as always, sight back into your awareness in such a way that it doesn't shove awareness of your body into unawareness, that it doesn't shove your body to the side. So often sight and thought come at the expense of knowing, attending to the body, to our feelings, to all that the rest of the mind outside of thought signals to us. 